Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by... AutoLine is brought to you in part by the commercial vehicle brands of Tenneco. Pioneering global ideas for cleaner air and quieter, smoother, and safer transportation. Warner, developing advanced technologies specifically aimed at reducing emissions, increasing fuel economy, and improving performance. Our award-winning innovations extend from turbocharging and cooling systems to friction materials and diesel cold start technology. Built on a century-long reputation of innovation and reliability, we have the track record that proves our technology can help meet the challenges of the commercial truck and off-highway industry. Deloitte's Automotive Group is at the forefront, driving transformation and tackling complex challenges. Whether you are interested in globalizing operations, optimizing supply chains, mitigating enterprise risk, or driving innovation, Deloitte can help develop solutions that create long-lasting value. To learn more about Deloitte's Automotive Group, visit us online at deloitte.com us backslash automotive. From the Auto Line Studios, here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week, where the talk's going to be all about the UAW labor negotiations with General Motors, Ford, and Fiat Chrysler. I've got three experts to help me dive into what the details of this negotiation is going to be all about, including Kristen Gicek from the Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Dr. Arthur Schwartz with Labor and Economics Associates. He's also the former general director for labor negotiations at General Motors, and Robert Sharavelli with Strategic Labor and Human Resources, and it's great to have the three of you here. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. Kristen, I'm going to start with you. Uh, everyone's talking about how important these negotiations are, but I hear that every time a new contract comes up, how do you see it? Is this really that much out of the ordinary or more important than other negotiations? I, I think there's a number of things that make this pretty important. One, this is the first set of negotiations out of the bankruptcy. There's no more of the terms of the bankruptcy in place. Which um, means that GM and Fiat Chrysler employees right. were not allowed to strike. They were not allowed to strike. and Now they can, if they so choose. They can, um, and Ford always could. Um, this is the first negotiations in some time since the 90s that have come on the heels of five very profitable years um, and 10 years of concessionary agreements and no raises for the first tier workers. Uh, I think the effect of the entry level people voting for the first time, I think, in large quantities on their own terms of their agreement because this entry level uh, provision was put in place in 2007, voted on again in 2009 and 2011, but we've hired a whole lot more of those people since then. And then the last thing is over half of the Fiat Chrysler Ford and, G and GM employees who work um, in the plants, our UAW members, live in Michigan. And this is the first agreement that will be impacted by Michigan's right to work law. Oh, very interesting. I didn't realize half work About in half. Michigan. Yeah. Very interesting. So Art, how do you see it? Is this uh, an extraordinary set of negotiations or just sort of run of the mill? Well, I think it's going to be a very interesting set of negotiations for all of the reasons Kristen just gave. Plus, we are kind of at a crossroads right now. And the question is, what direction are we going to go in? Uh, are we going to 
continue on trying to negotiate competitive agreements? Or is it going to be kind of a return back to what we usually have where the UAW is looking to, for, to add to agreements uh, for their members at all times? So uh, we've had five good years, and the union members have shared in that through the profit sharing that they've got uh, significantly. Uh, the question is, where do you go from here? Do you continue that path, or do you go back to the kind of the, the model that used to be in the in the 90s. And we'll get into more of the, the details of that in a moment, but Bob Sheravelli, I'd like to hear your thoughts of how do you view these negotiations coming up? Well, there's always a lot of anticipation with the Detroit Three, and I've always seen them as a bellwether because they're monolithic negotiations with a monolithic union, monolithic employers, and my view of it has always been they act as a bellwether for the supplier community. If you look at the second quarter of 2015, the UAW negotiated about 26 collective bargaining agreements. Coming into the third quarter of this year, they will negotiate 45 different collective bargaining agreements across the country, almost 50% of which are going to be in the Midwest region. And if you take out the Detroit three, that means there's going to be a lot of supplier negotiations. And this negotiations acting as a bellwether means there's a lot of suppliers, mostly first and second tier, a few 0.5 tier that are going to be looking at things such as variable comp, two tier, um, productivity improvements. And there's also going to be a handful of common issues that not only the union and the employers have in common, but as an extended enterprise that the first tier will have with the uh, D3. Kristen, you see it the same way? Do you think these negotiations are going to then affect other negotiations, especially in the supplier automotive supplier community? I think primarily in the automotive supplier community. I mean, the um, Detroit 3 negotiations, you know, Detroit 3 only make, what, 47% of the cars now, the market share. Um, we don't have the majority of the share. We don't have the majority of the production. You know, this, the, the wages and benefits in this industry are really set by the internationals and the Detroit 3 companies. So, you know, this does set it for unionized companies um, and largely for people who are working in Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. But beyond that, um, I think it kind of falls apart. And what's your thoughts on that, Art? Well, we always tended to argue in the negotiations that the, com the component industry was a different industry than the OEMs and therefore should have a different contract. That's what led to the spin-off of Delphi and Visteon uh, from GM and, and Ford. So, yeah, they play a role, but they don't translate 100% because it is a different industry. I think that it's, it's, it's in many ways a much more competitive industry with lower wages and different benefits uh, and trying to fit the component industry to the OEMs has always been a losing proposition. Uh, yeah, it's going to have an impact in general as, as maybe in directional and whether uh, there's a pay increase or something like that. But I don't think it, it translates one for one, certainly, uh, into the component industry. I see it going in just the opposite way. I don't think the suppliers will affect the D3. I think what the D3 is going to do will, will affect the suppliers. And in this one regard, if you think about the UAW's evolution over time, they've gone from a uh, 
big reliance on fixed wages, taking wages out of competition. And when we look at the collective bargaining structure, we have to look at it through three lenses. One, uh, pay systems. Two, security systems. And three, governance systems. The UAW has ceded or let me put it differently, they've opened up the playing field for the suppliers to look at variable comp and different ways to provide security for the membership. Now, there are secondary problems associated with the negotiations from the D3. If the wage negotiations um, go in one direction or another, there will be secondary impact. For example, will there be a movement of product from the OEMs to the suppliers? Will there be a migration from high-cost, inflexible regions to low-cost, flexible regions? I am very, um, I, I have a lot of faith in the negotiators from the D3. Very, very smart people. I have a lot of faith in the UAW folks. But even with that level of intelligence and experience, think about the mistakes the industry's made in the collective bargaining agreements over time. And it's going to be their challenge, especially the UAWs, to balance the interests of the membership with what is good ultimately for the employees and the industry. That's a key point, I think, Kristen. I'd love mm -hmm. to get your thoughts on that. Clearly, the UAW workers who have not had a raise in 10 years, although, as Art points out, they've gotten lump sum payments and profit sharing. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, they haven't gotten a raise in 10 years. Pensions and things are built off that base rage, right. wage. So you'd expect that. And yet, I, I think it's some of your own work shows that the D3, as Bob calls them, the, the Detroit 3, have even today higher labor costs than the rest of the transplants, the Toyotas, the Hondas, the BMWs, and the like. Um, except for Fiat Chrysler, yes. Fiat Chrysler is right at the blended average of the international producers in the U.S. Uh -huh. um, and Ford and General Motors a little higher than that. But I think, you know, not having a raise in 10 years does call for, and I think the negotiators on the company side recognize, a, a base wage increase, something that rolls in and compounds over time is probably due um, in this agreement, but maybe not every year. It might be every other year. Um, base wage increases increase labor costs. Um, and the flexible compensation, why you know, Mr. Marchioni likes it, is we reward you when times are good, and when times are bad, you still have your base wage. I think you know if they go back to a system of caps um, for the entry level, which exists at Ford, um, Ford has a 20% cap with an exemption for insourcing, so any insource job doesn't count toward the cap. Um, there's a great in, uh, goal for the, for the entry level people to have more hiring, to push them up over the, gap, over the cap. And top tier people getting a raise disincentivizes hiring. <laughs> so um, we had a, had a system that incentivizes hiring, incentivizes insourcing, and then put, put a raise on the top tier people, and you've got kind of a, a whole different situation. Now, of course, the call from the membership is no more tiers. Get rid of it altogether. Um, so caps may not be relevant, and we may be looking at you know, a flat uh, market overall, flat production, and flat employment. But, you know, in the compensation area, there is segmentation simply because the market puts it on us. So if you look at the supplier industry, if you look at the OEM industry, you will see that there's segmentation. And the one that's getting all the press now is the multiple tiers or the two tiers. Um, clearly, collective bargaining takes wages out of competition. But if you look across our industry, we have lots of segmentation. 
the thing that's going to be the challenge for the negotiators is when you look at the consolidation of the wage structure, are we um, compensating the right portions of the workforce? We are probably overcompensating production and undercompensating uh, skills. If you look at the tool and die makers, the mechatronics, the electrical folks in the bargaining unit, they are probably underpaid. And this is an area where segmentation is important. The other thing is where we don't have a two-tier is on flexible comp. Um, profit sharing, gain sharing, the three or four things that Art and his colleagues have negotiated in, this, in these monolithic agreements have flexible compensation that is meted out equally to all employees. So we can't just simply say the two-tier is um, the central theme. We do have equality in how compensation is, is meted out. Mm -hmm. Art, you, you were on uh, the, the corporate side of General Motors negotiating. How would you approach this in terms of, I, I think it's almost a given that they're going to have a base wage increase, but how do you not lock yourself in as a car company into ever higher labor costs that put you at a disadvantage? Well, that's up to the skill of the negotiators, obviously. I mean, we always went into the negotiations uh, trying to minimize the increase in the labor costs, certainly minimize increases in wages, but you go in knowing that you have to get the contract ratified. And in this particular case, it's probable it won't be ratified if there's no pay increase for the first tier. So now your job is, how do you, how do you balance that against uh, uh, the fact that you don't want labor costs to go up significantly. So as Kristen said, you don't do it every year. Uh, you don't have to do 3%. It could be 2%. Uh, you spread it out. You backload it. Um, and maybe you take away some money from the lump sums so it balances out. Now, that's still to the advantage of the UAW worker because it gets built in. The, the advantage to them of a pay increase is it's there forever. Whereas the lump sums, you get paid, it's a lot of money, and then you start all over again next year. Um, we used to have some issues at, at, uh, at some of our plants that were on some of the uh, uh, risk and reward systems uh, that when they didn't hit their targets, they wanted to be paid anyway because it wasn't their fault, they said. Well, that's not risk and reward, that's reward and reward, and it, that doesn't work. So uh, it has to be real risk and reward in this situation where if you don't hit the targets or you don't make profits, then you don't get paid. And we've had profit sharing since, what, 1982 in the auto industry. And the problem wasn't the formula. The problem was lack of profits. And that's always a problem. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, focusing on the hourly labor costs is, is one thing. If you look over time, uh, back in 1999, I think labor costs comprised 15 to 17 percent of the, of the cost of a vehicle. And it's now three and a half to seven percent of the cost of a vehicle. Now, that's many fewer people, higher productivity. Um, and a whole different wage system that we have now. In and place. I would add a whole lot more content on cars. And a whole lot more content, yeah. So, so the, labor becomes a less part of it when you add in all these electronics and things. Yes. Bob, um, Kristen mentioned it earlier. This is the first negotiation where in Michigan the right to work laws are now in effect where UAW members can opt out of the union if they so choose. What do you think is going to happen? 
I think it's going to be a, a small conversation, a bit of a red herring. I know Center for Automotive Research and Kristen's research has said that it really hasn't affected the membership numbers of the UAW. I don't anticipate it's going to either. We have in the Midwest region, certainly Michigan, we have a culture of association membership. And there's still, even though we don't talk about it at the dinner table, we still have a significant portion of our industry workforce that are members of a union, maybe the UAW. Um, it's easily handled in negotiations uh, here and other places simply by a few modifications to the union security agreement. I'm not overly concerned about it. Um, I do want to say something about what Art brought up, sure. and that is with the variable compensation since 82, but certainly since 2011, the uh, Detroit Three have paid significant profit sharing or variable comp. In the, in the last four and a half years, probably close to $40,000 a year. At, and Ford, if you, at Ford and General Motors. Yeah. At Ford, Chrysler was about half. So yeah. let's yeah. think about this. At Ford, if you're paying $40,000 a year, I mean $40,000 over a four and a half year period, that's approximately four and a half dollars per hour per employee. Yeah. So we need to uh, address this issue in a communications way, that is strategic communications to the membership of the UAW, that you do benefit from these feast and famine because we are going to have a strong labor, a strong automotive market through at least 2017, maybe longer, and they can be the beneficiaries of it, but they have to look at the package differently. Yeah. Well, the, the number that you just said, we, we took a look at, what if you got a 3% pay increase every year in the last four years? That would have put about $20,500 of extra money in their pocket, half of what they got at... Uh, at GM and Ford. So the bonuses paid more, but they're not guaranteed. That's, that's, you have to be willing to take some risk to get the reward. Well, that's how management does it, right? They, they, they get paid well, but they make the big bucks when times are good, and they make it in stock options and, and stock offerings too, not just cash. I, I wonder if that shouldn't be something that the UAW should go for. I mean, if if stock and options are good enough for top management, why not they, for the hourly they've worker? They've never been interested in well, that. Well, wait a minute. Uh, Walter Ruther mm -hmm. in the early 40s. I mean, well, I'm not late as old 40s. as you are, so I don't remember <laughs> that. Uh. Uh, but we're both history buffs. Yes. Yeah. Um, he uh, absolutely favored um, stock ownership and profit sharing. And if you think about it, I haven't done the study, maybe uh, some economist or some uh, industry expert will say, if they had done that back in the 50s, what would the landscape have looked like? And that's where I think these negotiations become so important, because unlike any other strategy an employer uses, the collective bargaining strategy is for a fixed period of time, three, four, five years, it can vary, but you don't change it, or you change it only in little ways. It is an uh, enforceable, you might say, strategic document. So if you look at your crystal ball today and say, what's it going to look like three years from now, Mr. Negotiator? You're going to make big mistakes, big successes, hopefully something just in the middle uh, so you don't ruin the industry. I think there's a lot of pressure on these uh, folks that are negotiating it. Mm -hmm. I, I think there is pressure. And, and Kristen, we saw the lead negotiators at both General Motors and Fiat Chrysler quit abruptly. Retire. Uh, re retire. <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh, to me, Effective what I immediately, yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anybody know what went on there? I mean, why would they just so close to negotiation start decide to retire? 
I don't think anybody really knows what went on there other than them and it's very uh, held very tightly inside the company but you know this the negotiations are led by these vice presidents of the UAW and the company um, but there's a whole big team behind them um, the strategies are set with the executive management I mean if you think Al Acabelli leaving changes Chrysler's strategy you don't know Sergio Marchione <laughs> so I think you know strategies the same the, the rest of the team is the same Glenn Shagney and uh, Kathy Clegg are very skilled negotiators so I don't think it's a huge disruption um, but it certainly was unusual <laughs> yeah I, I think experience does play a role I agree with what Kristen is saying, there's a strategic framework and the negotiators are going to meet it out. And they don't only get to these positions because they've proved their worth. But here's where experience is going to be important. When you look at um, General Motors and FCA with new folks, both on the union side and the management side, and then you look at Ford with Jimmy Settles and Bill Dirksen. Who've been there for a while. They've been there for a while. They have a really refined relationship. They can say, we should be the strike target. And they're saying that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they're likely to be the strike target. Don't undersell Kathy Clegg. I mean, she negotiated the 2011 agreement for General Motors, and she's got a lot of experience in there. And uh, it's going to be an interesting negotiations at GM with Mary Barra, Kathy Clegg, and uh, Cindy Estrada leading the way. That'll, that's really a first, and who would have thought it would be at GM? Yeah, well, three women I, leading I think the that negotiation. There's, a, there's 11 top negotiators, if you count the CEOs, the vice presidents, and all the people on the UAW side. Three have led negotiations before in their current positions, and that's Kathy Clegg, uh, Sergio Marchione, and Jimmy Settles. So you have uh, whole new relationships in most of those places. And Bill Dirksen has been there for about a year when he took over for Marty. Um, so that has had time to grow and, and, and build. So they do have a more mature relationship. We've been talking a lot about what the UAW wants. What do you think the car companies want out of this? Flexibility, productivity. They want to see the legacy employees transitioned into retirement. And that will have the largest impact, those three things, on the cost of labor. The other thing is they want to see, I, this is my view, you, you might have a different view, they want to see engagement with the workforce. And if you look at the really great negotiators these days, they, are, they have a portion of their expertise in traditional labor um, relations, but they're also great organizational design folks. They know how to use communication in the negotiations and in the midterm to align the interests of the people doing the work with the imperatives of the organization. And I think we saw a, a big thing when Ford uh, last year, I don't know what uh, General Motors and FCA did, not last year, but last negotiations, they had a web portal that it helped to inform the bargaining unit about what was happening. I thought there was really great thinking. Very powerful, right. They had a very, very developed social media strategy across the three companies at the UAW and were able to correct misinformation in the membership. You know, I heard that it says this and like, no, it doesn't. Um, or why didn't this, the, uh, why didn't the retirees get the Christmas bonus of $600 and say, well, because there's 10 to 1 retirees to you and that would cost you $6,000. You ready to give up $6,000 so they can have Christmas bonus? I think they engaged directly with the membership and it worked both ways. I mean, the issue of alternative work schedules at Fiat Chrysler were not on the table, were not passed in the, in the bargaining convention, but came up through the social media interaction. 
interaction about how much workers hated them. <laughs> and it became an issue of bargaining through that channel. Yeah. So the social media, the way it was developed in 2011, I think worked out real well. You've got to be careful, though. It's got to really be a joint uh, effort. Uh, for management to, to solely do social media, you run the risk of of being accused of appealing directly to the membership, which is illegal in the bargaining. Uh, it is done, uh, but it, sh it shouldn't be for partners as close as, as I, I still call them the big three, sorry. Um, <laughs> the big three and, and the UAW. So they, they tend to put things out together a lot, even though, uh, or they approve one, what one another does. It's because you've got to, because you can't, especially management. You, the union has a little more latitude because it's their members. They can appeal directly to them at any time. Management has to be careful in what they do. Uh, in that, but they, I thought they did a really good job in 2011. I, I think it meant the difference of, of ratifying the agreement at Ford. The agreement was going down into the weekend, and over the weekend the social media tide yeah. turned, and it, and it ended up passing. Don't you so. think th that it was Ford and the UAW together who mm -hmm. did that? Yeah. yeah. Now I think there's going to be a couple things that the negotiators have to consider in terms of uh, their fiduciary responsibility to the industry as a whole. You, you know, um, the Obama in, in administration is looking for fast track on the Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty. And I know maybe over the long term that might help global economics, including the auto industry. But in the short term, we have a couple examples of how that affects um, our employment in the auto industry. And one of the things the negotiators are going to have to do is contemplate a few things that we see happening in the future as a contingency to say, how do we negotiate governance systems or security systems to help in the eventuality the TPP gets passed. And, you know, next year, the year after, I can't remember what it is, we're going to have a Cadillac tax mm -hmm. for the Obama 2018, 2018 yeah. which is going to hit uh, the auto hit industry. No, not the members, the company. The company. Oh, the company. The company has to pay pays a 40% excise tax on the amount of health care benefits in excess of certain thresholds. It's like 10,000 something for 10, an individual. 227.5 for families. And 27.5 for families, you know. Um, <laughs> Numbers that's, are my life. But that's <laughs> certainly, I think, a big uh, goal from the company side is to have greater cost share the membership they think cost share makes you know have skin in the game will make you a better consumer of your health care it will help lower costs but we heard from dennis williams why not we put them in all one big pool yeah um, they've been managing the viva as one big pool and the benefit obligations over time have gone down considerably um, as a result of how they manage that they you know have a special uh, focus on taking care of the sickest sick who are the most costly co healthcare consumers and most costly, costly for insurance. Um, and if you manage that, then you can manage the cost. It would be the largest healthcare pool in the world. It already is, but it will be much larger. A lot of things to keep on uh, an eye on in these negotiations, and a lot of people are going to be keeping an eye on it. But I mm -hmm. want to thank the three of you, Kristen Gicek, Arthur Schwartz, Robert Sharavelli. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts about these labor negotiations. Yes, thank you. Underwriting for the production of Auto Line this week has been provided by Auto Line is brought to you in part by the commercial vehicle brands of Tenneco. 
pioneering global ideas for cleaner air and quieter, smoother, and safer transportation. Warner, developing advanced technologies specifically aimed at reducing emissions, increasing fuel economy, and improving performance. Our award-winning innovations extend from turbocharging and cooling systems to friction materials and diesel cold start technology. Built on a century-long reputation of innovation and reliability, we have the track record that proves our technology can help meet the challenges of the commercial truck and off-highway industry. Deloitte's Automotive Group is at the forefront, driving transformation and tackling complex challenges. Whether you are interested in globalizing operations, optimizing supply chains, mitigating enterprise risk, or driving innovation, Deloitte can help develop solutions that create long-lasting value. To learn more about Deloitte's Automotive Group, visit us online at deloitte.com backslash US backslash automotive.